Rosie on the House is on the road at the 39th Annual Folk Music Festival. Live from Prescott, here's Jennifer Romero. Hey y'all, good morning. Hey all y'all, welcome back to Rosie on the House, our 8 o'clock outdoor living hour. Don't get, don't get scared, Romy and Rosie are close by, uh, in air land anyway. I'm in Prescott, the guys are at the Saba Show at the Tucson Convention Center in Tucson, so you can stop by there and, and uh, meet them and get your questions answered. You have complete access to the guys today. They'll be on air from at the 9 o'clock open hour. Uh, segment so you can call and ask any question you have as long as it's about your house, home, castle, or cabin. And then 10 o'clock, we have um, a guest on this morning, Techna Security Systems, talking about smoke alarms, smoke detectors, um, and kind of in honor of fire prevention month, October. So that's a really, if you haven't seen the article, it's you can find that on our blog at rosieonthehouse.com or if you get our newsletter. Um, by signing up at info at rosieonthehouse.com. The article comes right to your email each week, and you get to find out all kinds of special stuff about us. Um, there's all kinds you would have known about the Folk Music Festival this weekend. Um, you can find our Echo Com- e-commerce, e-commerce, sorry, e-commerce store there. Um, we have events that we like to feature and highlight in the newsletter as well. So we're just getting, um, we're kind of tweaking that down to it's really one quick look and you have all kinds of good information you need for your house and for getting out and enjoying Arizona. So we are continuing from the 7 o'clock hour. We're still at the Charlotte Hall Museum in Prescott and we thought we would use this hour to talk about um, just the grounds here. We're on four acres and I'm here with Steve Whitley. He's the museum grounds supervisor. He's a master gardener. He's going to kind of walk us through the what we have here on the property. I have Mr. Ken Leia, who is the marketing director here and who's just been has just opened his arms wide and brought all these people in for us to visit with so we could introduce you to this wonderful, wonderful place. Good morning, Steve. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. I imagine you're an early riser, so 8 o'clock probably isn't too early for you. Oh, no. I'm usually here at 6. Yeah? Oh, wow. <laughs> I get here early. Are you here? Try all... to beat the heat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, are you here all year round? Uh, yes. Okay. Yes. Well, I think the thing that interests people most as far as the grounds would be the rose garden would you agree oh yes that's my favorite garden tell me something about that garden well uh it was started uh, i'm not sure the exact date but it, uh, but it was thought of from uh mrs mn perkins who decided to put this in to memorialize pioneer women you know uh, some women were go clear back to 1864 when the museum was started so these different um, roses represent different, is it a variety well, or a certain plant? How well, does that it work? did at one time. Okay. I mean, you know, but then we got to the, the point where some of the varieties that the family picked for their relatives were no longer available. Plus, I think we got to where we have more women than we have space for roses. Oh, <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm sure that's so the case. So we basically dedicate the entire garden <laughs> you know, ah, to all of the women. Yeah. Well, let's back up just a little bit, Steve. I want to oh, talk okay. a little bit about you. So has this been your whole life? You've always been a gardener? Uh, no, I've done various things over the years, uh, all kinds of different things. Yeah. Kind of jack-of-all-trades, you could say. Well, how, uh, how, did that, but, how does that journey look where you got from a jack-of-all-trades to master gardener at the Charlotte Hall Museum? Well, I moved here to Prescott in 1980, and then this was my first job. I was working here, and I've been here 37 years. 
Wow. And uh, most of it's been on the grounds. And uh, I've just learned to do all kinds of things. You yeah. Know, just jump into whatever. <laughs> and so you're a master gardener. Yes. How, how long have you had that status? Well, I it was uh, I'm thinking it was about 83 or 84. Uh, went through the very first master gardener program here through the cooperative extension agent. Okay. And uh, when you do master gardening, is that specific to your area, or is it an no, overall it, it, kind it, of? No, it covers everything. Okay. You know, in, including speaking to the public. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because at one time when you first, the way it used to be. In fact, I, I used to write articles for the newspaper. It was part of a volunteering thing. Ah. And uh, then that kind of faded away. Now, you know, some of my volunteers here are master gardeners that have gone through the program. Wow, that's great. Well, so how many varieties do you think you have out there then? Oh, I have probably over 50 varieties. Wow. You know, and then I have about, in, in the rose garden itself, I have about 275 roses. And where are we in the season right now? Are we getting to the close as it we're, cools we're off, at, of course? Yeah, we're at the end of the season. Uh, as soon as we start getting major freezing, they will be done. What What is the prime time? If somebody wanted to plan their staycation around coming up to see the roses at the prime time. I think, uh, you know, September and to now. Really? That's later than I would think. Yeah, well, we've only had a couple of uh, freezes so uh-huh. far. They haven't been that cold. Yeah. And the roses still look pretty good. They do. They do. We see them from here. We are. We're looking out at this beautiful hedge of roses, all colors, all sizes. Um, But yeah, September is usually the best month. Okay. As far as the roses are concerned, that's when they've they're the fullest. Uh, Somewhere around the first of September, I stop deadheading, so it stays a little fuller. Do you teach classes at all? On no, are there classes up here, Ken? Well, other than. you know, teaching volunteer training. Oh, right, right. Not yeah. to the public, yeah. though. No. The, the I understand that, yes, the cooperative uh, extension from the University of Arizona does come up here, and they do gardening classes, and there are a lot of volunteer organizations that do participate in that. We like to think that a lot of those volunteers come over to our campus here and help Steve working on the campus yeah. grounds. Yeah. Yeah, in fact, they uh, I give a, a tour to the Master Gardener class. Uh, every other year when they have the hold the class in Prescott. Uh, the, the other year they hold it in Cottonwood. So they'll so come up and you'll explain yeah, the different... I take them around the grounds and, the, the, you know, their teacher tells them about the grounds and then I'm just here to fill in some of the things that he doesn't know. What What are some of the challenges you have for keeping that garden looking just like it is? Uh, it's, it's a fair amount of work. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I was going to talk about this a little later, but oh, weather, sure. weather is one one okay. thing. Uh, okay. I mean, uh, you know, in the uh, the spring when the when the garden starts growing, we get late freezes, mm-hmm. and that's that kills most of my roses. I mean, you know, up to about twenty five a year on an average. It kills twenty five of your roses. Yeah. Okay. Roughly. Okay. Uh, it sometimes there's a, a one or two from winter kill. Uh, but then uh, after that freezing is over, usually, you know, we can get some late freezes in May. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just replace the roses and then uh, fertilize once a month and spray for uh, the fungus and pests as needed. You know, and it just... Uh, I think there's an art to doing roses. It always sounds kind of like a scary thing. As a, as a homeowner, I've always wanted to do that. And it, yeah, it's, it's, it's labor-intensive. Yeah. And, uh, you know, because once... The roses start growing. You need to go in and deadhead. 
Mm-hmm. Which means to tear to off the... Take, take off the old rows, ones that's wide open and starting to lose its petals. Is that... Do you use a little scissors or do you just well, pinch no, them Well, no, I off? use my, uh, you know, my snippers. Okay. And I cut them down generally to the first leaf that has five leaflets. Okay. You know, at about a 45-degree angle. And... Uh, and then what does that do for the plant? Well, it promotes the plant to grow more roses. Okay. Because, you know, the cycle of plants is they want to put out seeds, and if they're, when they're done, they quit putting out flowers. Got it. You know, because they want to, you know, you know, last forever. They want to keep going, so they're producing seeds. So when you do that, you cut the old roses off, it makes it want to grow more new roses. What about, so if somebody wanted to plant roses, when, do you, when does a homeowner need to start like well they they can start early in uh in real early spring end of winter uh by you know purchasing bare root roses Mm -hmm. Uh, i prefer to buy them in pots i've never had good luck with bare root what's the difference well the bare root is just just an exposed root and it's just got moss around it to keep it wet and uh seems like every time i tried buying bare root i'd lose about half of them interesting (laughs) so i wait till they come out in pots and then I then I'll plant them that way, and I have less less uh, dieback. Do you have a favorite one? Uh, I don't recall the variety, but it's a orange. Yeah, I like, the, like orange the orange roses, color. kind yeah. of like Tropicana, and except there's another one that's a little more orange than that. I just don't recall the name. So you can choose roses by color, obviously. And, oh yes. And is fragrance different on the different varieties? As well? uh, yeah, I mean there's there's two different uh, sentimental roses. Uh, one is uh, sentimental by the scent, and that's one of the most fragrant roses that I have. And then, uh, of course, there's red roses like the Mr. Lincoln. Uh, I also have John F. Kennedy, uh, you know, Christian Dior. There's just, just so many different roses. Christian Dior rose? Yes. There's, there's a lot of them. I can't name them all. <laughs> Do you have any of the historic roses? Like, isn't there a tombstone? Do you have a cutting from that at all? Uh, no, I have a couple of old uh, original roses. They're Rosa Burgosa's. Uh, one is they're not in the rose garden. They're various other places, you know, because I have quite a few roses around the grounds also, around the other buildings. Mm-hmm. What else do you have out there besides roses? Well, in the rose garden, nothing, just roses. Okay, but, uh, the, but there's other things going on. Is that, well, is that a, most of your work is right there in the garden then? Well, not necessarily. No. I mean, I have all these other, you know, gardens around the grounds. I see flowers. In fact, yeah. In fact, uh, we went through this year and... Uh, rebuilt a lot of the flower beds which uh, i'm gonna try to do next year i've got a, a few more you know because i need to rebuild them about every three years otherwise some plants take over and so you just strip them out and put in fresh yeah or just cut soil. some of the other ones back and add new new flowers yeah just to keep the variety it sure enhances the experience up here doesn't it oh yes no, without a great. doubt because particularly with all of the signage that we have that identifies some of the flowers and some of the plants so that folks can say, oh, I like that plant. Can I get that and, and take a cutting of it or find it at a nursery and put it at home? Mm-hmm. So we have that capability as well. Yeah, and I, I try to grow some you know exotic things that aren't really supposed to grow here. But How's you know, that go? It, it does okay for a while. Some things last a few years and then they go away, and you know, but it's something to play with. I like to experiment a little bit. I think that's part of being a gardener, don't you? If yes. you if you think you have to get it right the first time, you'll give up. I've been there. I'm on my second round now. I'm trying to realize that you don't always succeed. And, you know, and we live on the desert floor in Phoenix, and everybody brings what they think should grow and what the, their favorite things. 
And if you don't see them growing somewhere else, chances are you're not going to be able to get it to grow. But however, whenever we say you can't grow something, somebody manages to get it done because they want it that bad. You just have to be willing to put the work in. And we've got 150 years of people coming here from the East Coast and migrating way and trying to bring their Massachusetts flowers and floribunda and try and plant it in their gardens at, at their homes. And so we've done a lot of experimenting. I know Steve's a, a little reluctant to talk about it, but there's been a lot of oh, plantings yeah. and things that he has presented and, and put here on the grounds to find out, does it work? And of course, there's been a lot of history of plants that have been brought here. People have planted them and they either took off and became a pest or they took <laughs> off and <laughs> at too. least they're working. And so he's had a chance to experiment with them. Visiting at the yeah. Charlotte Hall Museum with Steve Whitley and Ken Leia. And we'll be back in just a minute. Stay tuned. Good morning. Welcome back to Rosie on the House. Jennifer here filling in. For the 7 and 8 o'clock hour, Rosie and Romy are in Tucson, miking up for the 9 and 10 o'clock hour, so stay tuned. We have lots of good stuff lined up today. Um, we're, fin we're talking here at the Charlotte Hall Museum with Steve Whitley, who's the museum grounds supervisor and master gardener. Uh, after the break, after the bottom of the hour break, we're going to be talking with the curator of anthropology, Ms. Dr. Sandy Lynch, about some new projects they have going on here. You're going to really find it interesting. But Steve, I wanted to give you kind of the control the topic the rest of this time you know this is your baby this this grounds and i know there's things that you have a real passion for and a heart for what what do you want people to know about this this grounds well one of the things i wanted to talk about is uh you know the margaret mccormick rose okay uh she was the wife of the second uh, territorial governor and uh she passed away in childbirth and was buried here before she was taken up and then moved back east uh she, you know, a lot of the pioneer people brought a lot of their favorite plants with them. They brought seeds, cuttings, and rootings. Well, apparently Margaret McCormick brought a French persol rose here. A uh, French what? French persol rose. Okay. And uh, it's got a red flower with kind of a whitish center, and uh, it is planted in front of the governor's mansion. And it does well here. And it does very well here. And then uh, at one time, a local lady dug it up and took it to her house because the mansion went into private hands and then it was later brought back so we now we have a whole row in front of the governor's mansion of the margaret mccormick persalt rose so is that something very unique to charlotte hulk if somebody in the, in the area wanted one of those is there a place to get those are you uh well i might be able to get them a cutting but uh i think there's probably a few around and it's kind of like the yellow rose of madrid that was also brought here the same way uh, you know, there's patches of it around Prescott, Chino Valley, and, and other places. So you just need to know somebody. Yeah, and then or you know, so that that's something I could get you a you know rooting of. But uh, and you said see. there's that you know, is that the yellow rose of Texas, the same thing? Well, yeah, because they said it might have gone to Texas also, so that might be the yellow rose of Texas. Ah, but okay. I don't know. But the closest I could come up as far as identifying it is a Harrison's double. So there's a lot of history involved in understanding these roses and where they came from and who had them and yeah. who brought them. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of history with plants here. I read an article in uh, Arizona Highways, uh, March of 1952, and then this is where I've got some of this information. Okay. In fact, uh, we have English ivy growing on the Charlotte Hall building, and that uh, the cutting of that was supposedly came from the Blarney Castle in Ireland. Really, I've which been is very there. interesting. How cool is that? And so somebody would have brought it a little. 
They would have had to keep it wet, right? To get they it. would keep it moist, yeah. Uh, keep, they could wrap it in mm-hmm. something, rags or something, to keep the roots moist. Can you imagine somebody coming across? Or they'd bring it in a pot. You know, they brought, yeah. it, brought it in the wagons. And just think how yeah. much they had to protect that. All the yeah. way across the ocean and across for, the You know, land. for what? However long it took them to get from back east to here, yeah. Do we treasure things like that anymore? No, I don't think so, because it's too easy to get, right? Yes, too easy. No, some things, but a lot of these varieties you can't get. Right. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. And then also in that article, uh, there was a uh, fish pond that I see, and they had a nice picture of it. Well, that was long gone when I started here, so I built a new one in the, the exact same location. So. And we also had the, the rose garden itself used to be uh, right where we are seated right now. It yeah, here where the here. Lawler Center is. Originally, it was seated right here next to uh, where we are, and it's about, uh, what, about 100 yards away from or 50 yards away from the Rose Garden. Roughly, now. yeah. How long ago did that transition happen? Middle of the 70s uh, was when the... I think when this the, museum center the, was built. Right, for this the construction of this particular building. And so all of the roses were dug up and moved all the way down there. And then I understand, Stephen, you can... Uh, correct me and illuminate, um, but you found that there were some real challenges by moving them to the north side because the ground had to be brought up. Yeah, there's there's a layer of granite uh, underneath <laughs> our soil here. Yes. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I couldn't hardly keep anything alive out there. I've, I had about half the roses, so I uh, hired a man to build a rock wall and raise the rose garden up a foot because uh, roses, they like a lot of water. But they like good drainage. They don't like to sit in water. They don't like wet feet. Okay, so that works out pretty well here. I, yes. You're going to be really surprised. Now we have one minute left. And I know that one thing you wanted to do was acknowledge all the volunteers here. Oh, yes. How many do you think there are? I have nine volunteers that work for me. Yeah. I mean, we have over over 200 that work for the museum. You know, it and shows. We couldn't do it without them. It I mean, these people are wonderful. And without them, I couldn't keep this place looking as beautiful as it is. They, they just helped me out so much. I love the passion of everybody that works here and just the way they embrace all the visitors. It's not easy to be a good host all the time. That's right. But I've never seen anything other than welcoming, warm, come on in and enjoy. Stay tuned for Dr. Sandy Lynch and the new project at the Charlotte Hall Museum. Okay. Welcome back to Rosie on the House, broadcasting from the Charlotte Hall Museum. And this segment we have uh, Dr. Sandy Lynch. She's the Curator of Anthropology here at the museum. Good morning, Dr. Sandy. How are you? Good morning. I'm terrific. Good. It's a terrific day. It is a perfect bluebird day out there. There's not a stroke of wind. The sun is full-blown. The temperature started out at 53 when I got in the car this morning. Uh, but I think the high today is going to be what? Ken? About 75. 75. Perfect day to get up off that desert floor. Come on up and visit and visit the folk Mes- folk music festival thank you that was a full thing this morning so um i wanted to talk to dr sandy because uh, you have just a real you've been here 20 years 20 years tell me how you landed here so you have a doctor of anthropology right yes um literally uh, i walked was walking through the department of um, geology in one of the colleges and universities i taught at in uh, California, and this lady handed me this notice saying, these people are looking for an anthropologist, and I truly was practicing uh, resume writing, and I I made the short list. (laughs) 
and and been here since then. And you said you had family here, so it wasn't a huge... There's friends and family all over Arizona. So like I mentioned, I wasn't moving to a foreign country. Right, right. And so tell us, what does that word anthropology cover? Well, anthro are humans, and pology is the study of. And anthropology is a college discipline is basically has many prongs on it but the primary ones are cultural prehistoric which is a study of people that uh, don't tell you much but don't lie Um, and then other things like linguistics and in some ways more and more we're becoming people that are plugged into things like biology and other organic systems so because the people can't really tell you what their lives we have to become really good interpreters of what their life was all about. What did they have to work with to develop this culture, to develop this civilization? Or what didn't they have so they didn't take that corner? So that's a little, if I stood on one foot and gave you an answer, that's about it. That's your elevator speech. That's my elevator speech. Yeah. (laughs) Well said. I think from the little time I've had to get to know you, that you're a person that makes things happen. Um, There is something you've created, the um, fine art, market for right we do this uh, long live now uh prescott indian art market which kind of started with a director at the time that knew that i had a lot of relatives that i used to go hang out at markets and carry their moccasins and baubles bangles and beads and he said you know lynch i think we'll do an art market here <laughs> and he says how many indians can you squeeze on the lawns and i said about 80 and so we started That's that on the way. lawn here at Charlotte Hall. Right, right, right here. So we started bringing them in and gosh, two things happened that went well. We had big crowds. We were in the black and the Indian artists were loved the reception they had here in Prescott. They loved the people here and as some very, very high end fabulous artists that are really hard that don't leave home and have their own galleries said this is the way it used to be when markets were fun before they markets were commercial were fun and if if the arizona listeners wanted to plan on seeing that market this year it's traditionally the second Always weekend the of second july full weekend in july okay correct july 14 and 15 okay great That's this year thanks yeah. Ken. coming in thank you <laughs> yeah so that idea started on a napkin, I'm told. Yeah, well, what happened was when I, w- I didn't know a darn thing about how to do a show, but I knew an awful lot about what I didn't like about going to them. And so I sat down with about four good American Indian artists and said, hey, this is an opportunity to do it our way. What would you like to do? <clears throat> so the first thing out of the door was, you know, we're juried and looked at a whole lot. <clears throat> what if we had American Indians take over that part. <clears throat> and that's what essentially happened. That's so great. So so now you have this other thing. I don't know how I don't know if it started on a napkin or not, but we're, we you have a project planned here for Charlotte Hall on the grounds themselves. You want to tell us about that? It's a bar napkin too. Is it? Okay. <laughs> I have a lot of bar napkins, but they you haven't turned into such there, fabulous there are things. People here. that follow me around with files that put these in as I drop the post-its <laughs> okay. everywhere I go. Um well an ethnobotany garden is basically another kind of exhibit. And the plants and everything that you see, including the organic rock that's in them, are artifacts. Just like if you walk in and you see a gun in a history museum, or you see corn beans and squash as <laughs> an American Indian exhibit. But when, you, when you're in an, it's kind of an immersive exhibit. And if you do it right, 
you can learn so much as a scientist from the experiment that you create in creating an ethnobotany garden about how prehistoric people worked out problems, like, like Steve, trying to see if something got to grow and why it grew. And, and not only that, that's what ethnobotany is. It's a relationship between plants and people. And so that's kind of a summation on how that starts. And uh, by studying that relationship, you can tell how far people are going to get with that system. If they develop something like, as we know at corn, it allows them not to be hunter-gatherers anymore and they can become sedentism. And when that happens, big things can start happening to culture. So that's, that's if, you, if you get that little germ of what an ethnobotany garden is and you have a lot of land, you have a garden like that. <laughs> So, Ken, help us describe that, what that's going to look like in the end. We, we kind of walked it last night. There's, there's, right now it's kind of a, an area where there's a lot of concrete mm-hmm. and yes. a kind, of, kind of disjointed, really. Yes, uh, but but what, you're going to what, finish what, it out in this wonderful... Right. What, what will end up happening is that as, as you get closer and closer down the walkway, you'll see off to your right the Corn Maiden. And that's a bronze sculpture that Sandy can tell you about in a moment. But that'll be on the right, and it'll be kind of a highlight of going through. And all of the plants that will be there are the native plants that were here 100, 200, 500 years ago to try and recreate what was the, the, the plants, the flora and fauna that the settlers found when they were coming here for the very first time. You'll also see what we like to describe as Sandy's Hill, but it's actually the petroglyphs from this area that the native peoples had done here thousands of years ago. And this will be part of the, the full culture of and integrate their history into our history as well. And the story behind that was that those beautiful petroglyphs were part of a building site, right? And, yes. And somehow were, y'all got word that they were just going to roll them into the dirt. Yeah, they were. it was part of a, a land development. Now, this is going back a long time ago, but it was still, there was a development planned, and they were going to just fill the holes and put dirt on top of them, bury them, and build houses on top of them. And we found out about it, or the museum found out about it, and I know that Sandy was very instrumental in saving a lot of those rocks and putting this hill together. She virtually hand sculpted that. For, she had other people doing it. She, if you saw Sandy, <laughs> <Could've directed laughs> yeah. <laughs> my reaction on my feet, my face, exactly. It it does kind of look like a bump in the sidewalk right now, but um, what you would call what the world gives you, what what nature can give you, takes a little while for it to really develop, but. The dating on this goes back a long time, and I think what it pulls together here, a lot of people don't know, <clears throat> Granite Mountain is one billion years old, and you don't have a lot of one billion year old rock anywhere in the world. And so the foundation of that bump in the hill looks really strange. It's got smoke-covered black rock, and into that we embedded 19 uh, bedrock petroglyphs, which we're not really sure if they're... Um, language that needs a ros- their Rosetta Stones. We don't know that. Or if they're art galleries. So what better way oh. than take these petroglyphs to tell the story of human survival? And uh, so that's why that little bump in the yard right now got its start, because we sure didn't want to move any more of those big black granite boulders. No, it's <laughs> amazing. It's amazing to look so, at. Right now there's a little fence around it to keep kids from probably clamoring all over it. But um, right. I've seen petroglyphs. We, we spend a lot of time outside, but 
they are really very well preserved. Yes, and you are. get right up close to them and you can really see. And, and you you find yourself right away trying to decide what what are the, what's that saying? What is, You're looking exactly. for the meaning. They are, and that's art. Art tells you something. It has a visceral. It's just like American Indian art. It has a visceral response inside. Good art tells you this. Art that's going to last a million years is like that. It resonates with what's in your gut and your spirit. So even though you're not person that created it and knows what the true meaning of it is, it still creates a feeling and it's evocative. So so that's the heart, if you will, of this ethnobotany garden and where we wanted to go with it. And, and there's another reason to do this too. This is probably one of the places in the yard, and we're talking a four-acre yard here, mm-hmm. that Steve had to turn the water off for these to make it. And so look at the lesson that alone can teach you because water is going to get scarcer. And at least for an awfully long time, the way we've studied drought over the, over the centuries of the earth, we go through these cycles and human life is very fleeting. We might, you know, get an 80 year run and the next 80 years is not going to be like it is now. Mm -hmm. But by using native plants that have weathered the storm for thousands of years, it gives us a clue of how we might want to landscape our lives in the future. What, what plants we'll have to use. Where will you get all these plants? Steve, <laughs> um, he, he's a Mr. Wizard on all of this. Um, he, he has connections just like I black my blackmail relatives into doing the Indian market. He, he has a lot of friends out there that he does some horse trading with. I think he's going to come in and tell us. You got, you got some. <laughs> yes, I am. There you go. So how, how are you going to find those plants? That... Well, there's, there's several native nurseries around. We have a native nursery mm-hmm. here in Prescott. Okay. Uh, there's one over in Cottonwood. Uh, there's other other places around. I mean, I can I can find the natives. Yeah. So it's it's not a problem. Okay. And the tricky part on some of these natives, um, and we've got really good plant botanists that can tell us what this plant needs. Like manzanita, for example, you don't just pick up a piece, dig out a root or two, and bring it over, because its whole life depends on a community that's plugged into a delivery system through the roots. So what you get may not have a cousin next door that can supply the vitamin it needs. And so manzanita transplanting is, like, really tricky. So, but Steve... Yeah, and Steve, I've tried it and didn't have any but, luck. But we're, <laughs> I so always we're wonder about that because it's very... You never see it standalone. It is no, this, like, is. forest of manzanita. It is. It's beautiful. And it has this underground transport system to get everything that it needs from water to minerals to everything else. And that's why it's in the darndest areas. And you have to transplant the community. Pretty much, yeah. So... So that's one of your are you gonna, that's one of your challenges. Yes. Yeah. yeah in fact, uh, the uh, the man who actually designed the ethno garden, uh, he said he was pretty good at uh, you know keeping manzanita alive. So I'm going to rely on him right. for our specimens. All right. So how many different specimens do you think you'll have? Well, we, the Yavapai Prescott Indian tribe gave us a plant list of things that their elders had told them they used, you know, and it's 40 strong and growing. But the primary, and first of all, a lot of these plants, when we have fences around things, it's because they're saber-toothed plants, mm-hmm. okay? And you don't want a child to fall into an, a, a prickly pear cactus farm here. So the fencing is not so much uh, to preserve the ethnobotany garden as to not kill visitors <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so going around. Um, but it is a, it is a rather remarkable plant list that they gave us. But the number one plant that we know here, and, the, and I put this one because they were probably getting short on time maybe, mm-hmm. was the fantastic story of agave or this plant that the uh, Yavapais call essential, the essential carbo- carbohydrate viol. 
let's let's come back and start. We have one more segment left to visit oh, with you, and okay. let's let's go ahead and take our commercial break, and come back, and you can tell your story all in one chunk. Got it. All right, hang on. <laughs> Welcome back to the last segment of the Outdoor Living Hour of Rosie on the House. We're at Charlotte Hall Museum up in the beautiful town of Prescott, and we're talking about the grounds here at the Charlotte Hall Museum with Steve Whitley, Master Gardener, and Dr. Sandy Lynch, the curator. She's a curator of anthropology here. Um, Steve, you, t- you mentioned uh, we talked in the first couple segments about the Rose Garden yes. and just 250 uh, about 275. 275. And we had a caller just asking, in the Prescott area, do you have, do you have to use the gypsum to, when you're planting things like we do? It doesn't hurt. Uh, the thing is, most of the garden areas that I have have been, uh, uh, a lot of topsoil from the lake beds have been brought in. Okay. It's kind of a clay soil, yes. And so, yeah, sometimes I use gypsum. Mostly just organic matter. Okay. Organic matter is kind of like key. Like I make my own compost. Okay. And I use that to fortify the soil or, you know, help with the structure of the soil. And you mentioned that one of the key components of that was making sure that the roses could drain. They don't like to sit in water. Right. Okay. I just want to clarify that for our caller. So, Dr. Sandy, we were talking uh, through this new project y'all have worked. And actually, you have a lot of the things already in place. It's a matter of kind of building it out. You have the wonderful petroglyphs and the, Mm -hmm. is it matats or matatis? Matate. Matate. I think I counted nine out there that came off that property with the, so it's going to be just, I think the kids and the people that come will really get a sense of what life was like even before Charlotte Hall. And as you enter this garden, um, there's a Beautiful statue. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Corn Mother? Well, the stu- the, there's a bronze st- statue that was created by Hopi artist who lives here in Prescott named Al Koya Waima. And he um, is a good friend to the museum, and he has it technically on loan and essentially for sale if anybody wants to buy it where the money comes here. But uh, Al is one of the high-end artists in the American Indian art world. But it goes beyond that. Al, Al is also a scientist, and so he, no, a serious scientist, because um, he w- worked on um, people that go around in space. He's a, that kind of an engineer. But he also knows the history of American Indians that go back in the thousands and thousands and thousands of years. And the Corn Mother celebrates a very interesting thing that happened um, that started 9,000 years ago in Central America in the Western Hemisphere American Indians were the first manufacturers of GMO products, okay? They took a tiny plant that has silk thread that attaches to a grain so that when the wind would blow over, it would shatter and the seeds would spread everywhere. And so a handful of Indians started off in Central America selecting species or selecting uh, parts of it genetic that was kind of genetically different plants that hung on to those seeds, and they kept planting those for hanging on to that central core, that piece of straw, and over time developed an eight-row corn that became the bedrock of civilization for American Indians to have villages and settlements and Pueblo houses. And so... So they actually developed the corn. They did. They genetically modified it by selection through selection processes, which we do today, only we speed it up in, in laboratories. But, but that is the first genetically modified food that you'd keep your children away from if you're a purist. 
That would have killed us. It would have R and D would have been killed the budget. Let's try something else. But that that's we would have survived it without it, right? How, how would they have reached the level of civilization without it? So, so that's what the corn mother is about. That's the story behind it. It's just like the petroglyphs has its story why it's there. It's a beautiful piece. It's about what do you think? Four four feet tall. Well, maybe? when you're five two, everything's a giant. <laughs> I'm with okay. you. It's over my head and then some. <laughs> That's great. Okay, so tell us, uh, what else do you want people to know about that? How, what's the time frame on it? We're, oh, it's we're, like we don't have time frame. It's oh. Indian time <laughs> because plants grow, die, you know, yeah. so it's not a given. Um, but but if you if you we look at things for the 10th generation yet to be born, and that's 10th generation is coming along a lot faster. So there are things we're going to learn in this ethnobotany garden that might save Prescott, might save parks because things will come out of it that's really critically essential. And um, we started talking about one of the key plants that was out here that was kind of the bedrock for uh, carbohydrate, for example, that kept people alive, the calories that kept people alive. And that is one of those saber-toothed plants we call agave, and a special kind of agave called agave perrier. And here's, here's what American Indians, the early ones, the ancestors, had to work with. Here's a plant that if you tear off a leaf, if you can get there without bleeding to death, mm-hmm. pop it in your mouth. It's like putting toilet cleaner in your mouth. It'll burn. It's caustic. So how did they eat that? And why did they eat that? And why did they eat it? Well, they probably looked at what happened to javelinas that went crazy after a prairie fire when the agaves were standing out there. That through the spires and the sticks and the thorns and everything that that plant produces, they were gobbling it up. So they probably wandered over there, tasted it, and said, holy cow. And what they had was a plant that had more calcium than an eight ounce. A a cup of agave has the same calcium a glass of milk does and enough vitamin C to ward off scurvy. It's just really hard to process it in the kind of form that you can actually, they actually developed a system of canning and storing it which is another day to come back and talk to you Mm -hmm. about. But they were able to build a storehouse, and the Avapais relied on that single thing. It was the mother of all carbohydrates that defined them. Steve, what do you think about planting? Is agave okay to plant? Is that a learning curve for you? Not in his rose garden. Not not in my rose garden. She she tried that one. (laughs) But uh, no, it's not hard to plant. All right. Well, hey, thank you so very much for joining us at the Charlotte Hall Museum in Prescott. Come on up. There's still time to catch the Folk Music Festival. Rosie and Romy are standing by for the 9 and 10 o'clock hour at the Tucson Convention Center for the Saba Home Show. Have a great Saturday.